Well, thank you for being here. Good morning. I want to join with all the others thus far who have said welcome and good morning. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to say a special word of welcome. We're delighted that you're here. We don't think you're here by accident. We are convinced that God and his sovereignty and his goodness has drawn you into this place so that he can speak to and connect with you. And so that's our expectation for these next several moments that we have together. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to open God's word and we're going to worship. And so I want to invite you, whether you're on the third floor, literally directly above my head, or on this second floor or watching remotely from someplace, we want to invite you to actively and intentionally put away every other distraction, everything else that is actively competing for your affection and your attention, that you would give God his due. Now, it is January 31st, which means tomorrow is February, which means we're pretty far now removed from Christmas, which makes my heart hurt because I love and miss Christmas. One of the things I miss most about Christmas is the Christmas songs, the, the, the great old theologically rich, doctrinally stout Christmas carols, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. I mean, that's just a mind-blowing thing. We get to sing that at Christmas, and you hear it at the end of Charlie Brown, which is kind of nice as well. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. These are great creedal things that we like to sing at Christmas. Perhaps right up there with those two is what do you get a Wookiee for Christmas when he already has a comb? Nobody? It's actually really good theology. Now, it's not quite as creedally familiar, perhaps, but it's actually got a very important message for us. You've perhaps heard the question asked before, what do you get the person that has everything? If you or I tried to log on to Amazon.com and buy a gift for I don't know, Jeff Bezos, it'd probably be pretty lame because he pretty much has, uh, you know, everything. And it would be kind of, eh, but is he happy? By all accounts, all the news reports is that he's sort of a miserable, joyless, gradually turning into Lex Luthor kind of a person. There's this misery and joylessness. Why is that? It's because he doesn't actually have profound understanding, a deep appreciation for what he has and why he has it. So what do you get the person that has everything? A deep knowing of what they have and its worth. What do you get the church that has everything? It's the same answer. A deep abiding appreciation of the everything that they already have. A deep abiding understanding of the everything they already have. A deep, penetrating joy because of the everything they already have. See, the church has no need of the latest Christian blog or even the latest Christian pop song. The church literally has everything. Now, we are here this morning, either in person or remotely, to actually grow and to change and ever increasingly be led into a growing relationship with Jesus to become ever increasingly like his likeness. Every living thing grows. So the point of our passage this morning is our big idea. It goes very simply like this. Knowing is growing. 
It is God's plan for your life. It is God's plan for my life. Knowing is growing. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. We will be in the first chapter, verses 15 to 23. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll unpack it, and we'll see if we can apply this. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, just one very long run-on sentence. This passage is likened to it, just one very long sentence in the original, 170 words packed full of prepositional phrases. Your translation and mine likes to put periods in there because our brains just can't comprehend, but we're going to tackle it all at once because it's one massive, marvelous idea. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, (laughs) but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. And it's all about knowing, because knowing is growing. Now, last week we looked at the wonderful treatise of what God has done in Christ to redeem mankind to himself and therefore one another. We saw the entirety of the Godhead, the triune God coming to bear for our salvation, that the Father selected us in eternity past, that Jesus sacrificed in human history, and that the Spirit sealed us in our personal history. It is a glory. It is everything we need. So what do you give the church that has everything? Let's unpack this very efficiently, I hope, I pray. Verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, and the this reason is everything he's mentioned in verses 3 to 14, that you have everything, the fullness of the Godhead brought to bear for your salvation. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's gotten a report as he sits in prison in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, he's heard about this church in Ephesus. You might remember that sort of started accidentally on the back swing with these 12 Jewish disciples of John the Baptist who hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. He now hears of their faith in the Lord Jesus, but not just that. And your love toward all the saints. (laughs) You cannot say that you're growing in love of God if you're not also growing in love of others. I get it. Church people can be, you know. But if you're not growing in love of others, you're not actually growing in love of God. It's really amazing. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the the Pharisees ask him, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul will come along a little later and say, actually, it even boils down further than that. It boils down to just one, love one another. Because it assumes, it implies, it insists that, of course, we love our God. 
Paul says, I'm hearing about this. You across the sea in Ephesus, you're growing in your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of one another. This makes the apostle and any pastor very, very happy. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so we get now this pastoral apostolic prayer from Paul. One of the many times Paul records his prayer for us in Scripture. We have one in Philippians, one in Colossians, here in Ephesians. There's all over the place. These are marvelously rich prayers. It's also convicting because Paul is always in prayer. He understood that one of the primary focuses and missions of his ministry was the ministry of prayer. Yes, of course, the teaching of God's word, but it was the ministry of prayer. And I can tell you, Sundays are always so much richer for me when I've been praying for you. And for some of you, I have to lift with my legs. But as I think throughout the week, man, I pray for them. And I pray for them. And I pray what Paul says with thanksgiving and gratitude. I had to give up a long time ago praying, Lord God, would you please fix Jim Phillips? Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken Jim Phillips? I'm kidding, mostly, Jim. No, we pray with gratitude. I'm so thankful for him and her, how she is, what she is, what she does, what she means to this fellowship, what she means to my family, all those things. And I'm just enlarged with gratitude. Paul says, I never stop as I'm sitting in Rome in prison. In other words, his circumstances have nothing to do with his gratitude for the saints. That's supposed to be incredibly convicting to all of us. Because if we're being completely transparent, most of us would rather eat a light bulb than pray for the people in the room in which you're now sitting. And yet Paul says, no, I never, ever cease praying for all of you. And I don't just pray for myself. That's also convicting. Because much of my prayer time is all about me. Because I'm the one who matters. I've got needs. And the rest of you, well, good luck to you. No, 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 no. Paul says, I never stop praying for all of you in my prayers. That, verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Listen, this is not a throwaway verse. This matters so much. This is not just God out there. I just pray to God. My faith is very important to me. No, 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 no. This is very precise, very particular. It's very personal. It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are not multiple paths up the mountain. It's very specifically God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does something really incredible here that we probably don't quite grasp, so let me help. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he mixes his metaphor, we might say. All throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 24, Psalm 8, we get these wonderful questions. Who is the king of glory? Lift up your gates. Lift up your gates. Yahweh is the king of glory. But this is a distinctly New Testament idea. Not just the king of glory, who is imminent and transcendent. He is the father. Not like the father who was distant and disappointed and distracted No, the father that if he had one, you would sit in his lap. It's at once the father of glory is this idea of transcendence, because it's the father of glory, but also nearness and approachability and love and tenderness. And if I can go so far, even touch. Do you think of God that way? Or do you still think of some cranky old guy with a long beard tossing down lightning bolts? Well, stop that, because that's not real. He is the Father of glory. He is transcendent. He is omnipotent. He is infinite. And he's our Father. 
Now, this matters massively. Paul says, I give thanks to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom. And see right there in that one little verse, we've got the entirety of the Trinity yet again. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom. Now, some of your translations might have a lowercase s. Some of them have a capital S. Is this talking about the Holy Spirit or your spirit of wisdom and understanding? And the answer is yes. I think Paul's being clever because it's certainly in the context referring to the Holy Spirit, but it's also in the context of Ephesians talking about you and I growing in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. That he would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. This word, revelation, apocalypsis, is where we get our word for apocalypse. Something is veiled, it has to be unveiled. Now this is an important point. We cannot understand God's word apart from God's spirit. It is arrogance to come to the scriptures apart from humble, meek submittedness to say, God, if you don't speak to me through this by your spirit, this is just black letters on a white page. So Paul prays, I pray that the spirit of God would give you wisdom. What is wisdom? That you would see this through God's eyes. That you would see the world through God's eyes. That you would see the people next to you through God's eyes you would see yourself through God's eyes. Pray that God would do that through his word, by his spirit, among his people. In the knowledge of him, always hidden in the shadow of the cross. Not because you're Captain Awesome, because newsflash, you're not, and neither am I. In the knowledge of him. Then here's verse 18. It's the central thrust and theme of this entire passage for the morning. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Little geeky greeky here. This is a strange little verb tense Paul uses. It's called the perfect tense. It happened at a point in time with continuing effect and result. In other words, the eyes of your heart are already enlightened. There's a default darkness and depravity that comes with a human being right out of the wrapper, right out of the box, darkened and depraved in their understanding. But you, saints, the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. You can actually see things that other people can't see. You can discern and detect things that other people can't see because your spirit, your soul, has had the lights turned on. Now, this is remarkable. He's talking to the people of Ephesus that is the center of power of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was power, and it felt amazing. There was the temple of Diana, the Artemision. There was commerce and culture and wealth. Paul says, actually, you see things that nobody else sees. You are, in a sense, strangers in a strange land. You see through spiritual eyes. You aren't directed solely by your senses. Are you? Hmm. That since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, essentially, that you may know. And here's the key. That you may know. And then Paul's going to give us three things that he wants for the people at Ephesus and ultimately us to know. Now, we've had in verse 17 this epigenosis, this intimate experiential knowledge of God himself. Because knowing him is growing in him. Not just knowing about him, knowing him. But verse 18, he uses a different word. That you would have actual academic intellectual grasp and grip on these three things. We get two of them in this verse, and then the rest of the passage is about the third one. First, that you would know the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you happened in the past. It's the same kind of language as Genesis 6 in Noah's Ark. When God summons the animals, you don't see any of the animals asking the ark into their heart. 
God says, get on the boat. And they go, okay. Because that's what happens when God calls you on the boat. You get on the boat. And then Noah sealed the door. No, he didn't. God sealed the door. And none of those animals tried to escape. And not one of them did. They all made it. Isn't that interesting? God calls, God summons, God seals. Just like that, the hope to which he's called you. Now, you got to understand, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not, gosh, I sure hope that neato thing happens one day. Like, wouldn't it be nice to win the lottery? Or wouldn't it be nice if, gee, if I could just... No, 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 no. That's not the biblical definition of hope. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. It is a certainty, not a, not a wishing, a confident expectation of something good in the future. Now, let me illustrate it if I can like this. One week from today is our nation's greatest national holiday, the Super Bowl, apparently. Let's just imagine for a moment that the game kicks off and Patrick Mahomes, quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, the first several times he touches the ball, he throws an interception. Now, you as a fan base might be freaking out and throwing Doritos all over your new sofa, but not Patrick Mahomes. Do you know why? Well, because he's from White House. No, that's not why. It's because he's playing on Sunday, but he already has Monday's paper. And the headline on Monday's paper says, Chiefs, back-to-back champions, Mahomes, Super Bowl MVP. He's already got Monday's paper even though he's playing on Sunday. Now, can you imagine the exhilaration that he would feel even though he's thrown two picks and it was his fault? The errors that he's made, and yet he has Monday's paper. It's going to turn out with a win, with a victory. That's hope. You play the shots anyway. You, you do the stuff, but you know how this is going to turn out. If you will, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is eternity's newspaper. You know how this is going to turn out despite all of your errors and foibles and, and flaws and failures. You have eternity's newspaper. That's the hope to which he has called you. Done already. Despite all the things that you and I have a tendency to do to mess up, Paul wants us to know the hope that he's called us to. What do you give the church that has everything? That they would simply know what they already have, the hope to which he's called them. But wait, there's more. That you would know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? This is is bad grammar, Paul. You can't do this. God's inheritance? Who left any? It's, it's, it's okay. Paul's going, it's, just, it's, it's what he gets, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, the hope that he called us to was in the past. The riches of his glorious inheritance is in the future, as yet to come, the age that will be unveiled to us. We would know this. This age ain't all there is, praise God. There's something more amazing coming. We would know that and live like it was true. Look at the world like it was true. Love in the world like it was true. Paul says, I want you to know what are the glorious riches of his inheritance. That's in the future. Then finally, uh, in the saints, by the way, that all happens in community. Then verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So I want you to know what happened in the past, the hope to which he called you. I want you to know what's coming in the future, the riches of his glorious inheritance that are as yet to be fully revealed, and the greatness of his power that's happening in the present. What do you get the church that has everything? A simple abiding knowledge of what they have. 
what God did in the past, what he will do in the future, and what he is doing in the present is the greatness of his power. And then verses 19 through 23 are just him explaining and unpacking and illustrating what are the greatnesses of God's power. And it's incredible. It says in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Is this strange to anybody? I want you to know that which is unknowable. I want you to measure that which is immeasurable. This is really profound for us. You and I never, ever finish growing and knowing. The more we grow and grow, the more we know and know, and the more we grow and grow, and the more we know and we know. And and, and our whole lives just kind of turn into this, oh, my God, did you know he's done this? Oh, my God. Oh, my God, do you know he's done this? In the past and in the future and in the present, we never stop. He says, I want you to know that which is immeasurable, his greatness of his power, toward us, toward us, aimed at us, directed at us. His gaze is fixed upon us who believe according to the working of his great might, all of God's power directed, aimed toward us. What kind of power, Paul? What do you mean? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked, Paul says. The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Whoa, that kind of power is aimed at me now? Yes, it is, but wait, there's more. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is, again, a reference to Psalm 8 where The Hebrews thought of Yahweh far above. And Paul says, oh, oy vey, literally, it's Jesus. It's not what I thought. It's Jesus. It's a person, and I actually know him, and he actually loves me. Oh, it's him. He's been seated above all these power, authority, and dominion. This is a reference to the angelic realm. Even the stuff that is spooky and scary, under his feet, because he created them. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, which, by the way, if you lived in Ephesus, that was a spooky, freaky place. Paul says, oh, no, no, you think that's power? Your little black magic incantations and spells and shrines? No, 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 no. I've met the king of glory, and he loves me. That's power. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Again, we have to remember this age isn't all there is. There's much more coming. You used to hear and see only in staticky radio. It's coming in 4D. We have to look toward that with a certainty that that's going to come to pass. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. He is over everything and everything is under his feet. This is, again, a reference to Old Testament Psalms where that which is under his feet had the idea of a conquered king would be brought in and thrown down on the ground, and the conquering king would put his feet on top of him to say, I whipped you. I whipped you good, and now you're my footstool. That's a bad day when you're somebody else's footstool. Well, all of existence, material, immaterial, physical, spiritual, it's all under his feet because he is the king. But this king is like no other because he's also good, He also loves us. What do you get the church that has everything that they would know, appreciate, enjoy that which they already have? Because knowing is growing. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. What, what, what? Wait now, huh? God's gift to the church is Jesus. You thought it was you. (laughs) Actually, we'll get there in chapter 4 because it is. But God's gift to the church is Jesus. He's the one that is above everything, spiritual, physical. Everything is under his feet, and he has been given to the church, which is his body. This is amazing. What is the church? We say it all the time around here. The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit, and that's true. That's a theological summarized definition. But here Paul tells us, finally, in his great letter to the Ephesians, the church is his body. It is the the physical manifestation of the Godhead. He is infinite. He is immeasurable. He's incalculable. And yet the church is his body. The fullness of him, that's impossible. You can't have the fullness of God. He's infinite. But the church in this age is to be the fullness of him who fills all in all. How do you paint a portrait of the infinite God. You can't. And so what you must do is have an infinite number of canvases, each to paint a unique little story and vignette. Peter says, you yourselves are living stones telling his story. It's the only way you manifest the infinite is by having multitudes of infinite little canvases to paint on. That you would know this church that has everything what is the hope that happened in the past, the inheritance that's coming in the future, and the power that is at work within you now. So let me just apply this as quickly as I can, very briefly. Ephesians chapter 1, verses five, or verses uh, 15 to 23. Four very quick implications. Number one goes like this. The same power at work in Christ is the same power at work in us. Now, that's staggering. What is that power like? Well, read the Gospels, and you see a human being who is literally led by, indwelled by God's Spirit. Nothing that Jesus did in his earthly life was in his own power and deity. He laid that aside. Every miracle, every sign, every wonder that he does, it's in the power of the Spirit. And that same power is at work within us. But it's actually an ancient story. It's even older than the incarnation of Christ. When Paul says what he says about the power that took him, who was betrayed by his brothers, left for dead, raised up, seated him at the right hand, gave him a name that is above every name, it's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, who was also betrayed by his brothers, left to die in a pit, sold for silver, exiled, but raised up. And ends up being the bread of life, as it were, for those who betrayed him. It's the story of Joseph, fully manifest in Jesus, now at work in us. Because this is the kind of God we have. This is the kind of God we love and serve. That same power that was at work in Joseph over the Egyptian empire, the superpower of the world to to accomplish precisely what he wanted, it was also the same power at work in the life of Jesus, is at work among us now in the church. It's ours already. That same power is at work in us corporately to bring the presence of God into our lives by his spirit. We are, in a sense, in this moment, going through a God-sized transformation even as we speak. And it takes the fullness of the Godhead Trinity to bring it to pass. 
And it's happening. You guys, it's happening. Oh, that we would merely understand that, appreciate that, live into that. Second point, God is for us. We saw this in the text earlier. It's moving toward us, this power. God is for us. Not only does God love me, that was our big idea from last week's text. Not only does God love me, he's also for me. He's bringing the fullness of his existence to bear for my good. Even if life is still hard, and it is, and that's okay. Our circumstances do not exemplify how much God loves us or is for us. We have to keep reminding ourselves that. Please know that and never forget it. Preach that little sermon to your own soul, especially when the world and the flesh and the devil all line up to tell you that things are going bad because God's disappointed in you, because you messed up too many times this time. Oh, you did that thing again, and this time God finally says, that's it. Go to your room. No turnips for you. I don't know who that is, but that's not God. We have to remember that God is actually for us. I didn't spend too much time on it earlier, but one of the incredible things about this passage and this prayer is that we are actually God's inheritance. It's us. What he gets ultimately is us. And so God will do all that is required and hold nothing back to ensure that we become what he is worthy to receive. (laughs) He's not going to stop until we're fully baked. Because he's worth that. You see, what he's doing is actually rooted in his own worth. It's not whether you and I deserve it, because we don't. But because he is worth it, he will not stop until he gets what he deserves, his rightful inheritance. He will not leave his project unfinished. Third point, Jesus is king. I feel like I say this every week. I don't know why, just because it's in the text every week. Jesus is king. He is the head of the church, period. I look around this room, I got to see who was up on the third floor a little bit ago, and I saw a lot of different folks who represent a whole lot of different trajectories into this church, a whole lot of different church tradition. Some of you come out of this context, some of you come out of that context. I just want to say as emphatically and authoritatively and clearly as I can that Jesus is king. He is the head of the church. It is not a pope. It is not a college of cardinals meeting together in a consistory. None of that. It's not the head of any nation state. It's not a creed or a catechism. It's not a collection of any ecumenical findings or councils. It is not an elder board or any elder. It's not a pastor. It's not a deacon. It's not a church member. It ain't you. It's Jesus. He's the king of glory. And we sang about it earlier this morning. This king of glory, the ultimate, the infinite, the immeasurable, was stripped naked, beaten, shamed, spat upon, had his beard ripped out, punched in the face, nailed to a cross, hanged in disgrace. And he's the king, and he's the head of the church. And we say this all the time, but it bears repeating so that we know it. He is a death-proof king who is good. He's got this. Despite what your and my circumstances, relationships, situations might be telling us, no, 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 no. Here's what I know to be true. And knowing is growing. Fourth point, we'll end with this. We are the presence of Christ in this world. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about church. Maybe it's that environment where you have to go and tolerate that person who's sitting in your seat again. Oh, how dare they? But please know, there's no seating charts in church. 
in this church or any church or even the capital C church. We are the presence of Christ in the world. Let me be careful. We are not Jesus. I'm not saying that. But we are his material or physical manifested will in this time and space and context. In other words, we should be able to ask the question, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus live if he was living his life through me, through us? Well, according to this text, he is. It's astonishing that Jesus is literally living his bodily life in and through you and me, and importantly, us. Remember, Paul says, I never stop praying for me because I'm the most important thing in my whole life. No, 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 no. For y'all, Paul would have said, deep east Texas right there. I never stop playing, praying for y'all because you are the physical manifestation, the presence of Christ in this world. He is living his life through us. The point is not to wonder why life is so hard if God does indeed have all this power and indeed is for us. Then why is everything so hard? Because all of that power is not aimed at trying to make your life look like a Lexus commercial. That's a, that's a false gospel. I remind you that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death. Acts chapter 12, James was beheaded, and then all of the disciples die horribly, violent deaths, except for John, who was boiled in oil, somehow survived, was exiled, came back, lived to be over 100. That was not fun. Sometimes life is hard, and it ends tragically. But it does not diminish in the slightest that God is for us because we have eternity's newspaper. Never forget that. It's so that we can experience his power, his pleasure, his purpose as we live in this world the way Jesus would if he were here. Because in a sense, look around. You smell it? You, you, you see it? You hear it? It's like Jesus here by his spirit among his people revealed in his word. It's a really big deal. But Paul prays thus for these people. We have to remember that. The philosophy of Paul's day in Ephesus from the philosopher Plutarch said, know thyself. Paul says, no, that's a waste of time. Know God. Know God. Not about him. Know him as a person. Look, I'm not saying that there's not a place for psychotherapy and counseling and all kinds. There absolutely is. But principally, primarily, it's what do you know about God? Well, he's cranky and disappointed and distracted and dis disinterested. Wrong. Let's work on that. Do you know him? Friendly resource and recommendation. If you've never read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, I cannot recommend it more strongly. It's about knowing God because knowing is growing. This is God's plan, his purpose for your life, for our lives as a church. May we grow. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for this word. We do pray, God, that you would continue to move in your people by your spirit because of what we have seen unveiled, revealed to us in your word. God, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, God, that you would usher them, you would call them and summons them like you have the rest of us, that you would lead them irresistibly by your spirit out of death into life, out of darkness and depravity into light, that you would enlighten the eyes of their heart. Father, for the rest of us, as circumstances and situations begin to weigh heavily on us and we begin to forget all the immeasurable greatness of your power that is at work in us 
presently, would you remind us by your spirit? Would you help us to see and experience every situation through the lens of the reality of how we know you and how you love us? God, we pray for nothing less. We pray this boldly in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.